In Session with Dr. Farid Hulaku. Afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulaku, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram, or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Studio number again, 310-441-0555. So I want to start off the show today synthesizing or talking about a few different points related to neuroscience and some of the books I've read recently and some not so recently that might help explain some other experiences or things that we we observe in humans that at times I had a hard time explaining why it happens, but with new understandings of the brain, it makes more sense. So I'll, I'll get into what I mean there. So one main point to start with here is that we tended to think, and we probably think, even emphasis on that word think, that our brain is a thinking machine, kind of like a computer that it takes in information and it spits out some kind of an answer or response. And it does do that to a degree. But what we're learning more and more in understanding the brain is that it's much more of a predicting machine than purely a thinking machine, meaning that it is constantly based on what it is taking in. So it, it is a dynamic process. It's not only predicting, it has to predict based on something. But based on what it does take in, it is making a prediction of what it also expects to see and experience and feel and all the sensation, but also what it should do in response to that, getting prepared for that. So let's say you're going to the gym and you're getting close to the gym, your body might start getting ready to work out even before you are there in some ways or getting itself prepared to some degree. I'm not saying you can stretch your muscles in your mind, but you can in a way prepare and it does prepare itself for what it thinks it's going to experience next. And this is actually quite an amazing feat that allows for us to do so much in our days and how we um, are able to quickly act and interact with each other it reminds me of reading the book on how we talk by Enfield, I believe was the author. And we see that if you look at how people have a conversation, the amount of time in between when one person stops talking and the other person starts talking is clearly not enough time to produce speech, meaning to think of what you're going to say and to say it. Meaning that, yes, as sometimes we do in a bad way, we're thinking too much about what we're going to say next. But we're also able by how the person is speaking to predict when they're getting to the end of their talking and then we respond to them. So in our day to day and constantly without our awareness, we are making these predictions and those predictions allow us to act much more efficiently with the world. 
And this is still at times hard for me to even totally comprehend because it feels counterintuitive because we feel like we're experiencing things and I just take in what's around me and the surroundings and that's what I'm doing. But we really see, and there's evidence to show us this, that it's much more about these predictions that based on different things that are going on, it triggers something in us to then respond in that way. And related to the book I discussed on Monday's show, A Sense of Self by Veronica O'Keefe, this can be in some ways what memory even is, is like this full-on experience. Like you go into a room that you've been in before, even me, for example, coming into this studio, and it triggers some things in my brain to then make me prepare or respond in a certain way based on the expectations I have of being here and what I've experienced here. And actually, we've been here now I don't know, close to eight, nine months. And so at first it was a new place and that itself has a certain response and reaction. But the more times I come, the memory gets formed or the uh, reference frame using the language from the book, Jeff Hawkins's book I read a, a few weeks ago, A Thousand Brains. Using those reference frames, it becomes more modeled what my uh, expectation is of here, what I know to be here. And that starts to change over time how I feel here. And so you've also had that experience if you move or go to a new location at first because you don't have expectations of it and constantly have to take in new information that also leads to some of the anxiety that you experience but slowly once you're there more and more you feel more comfortable and familiar because now more of it is mapped out in your head it's not so unpredictable and so this also gives us some insight into how we always will have some challenge when it comes to change because it's something new which always involves more effort in our brain and how we have to respond but the familiar always will feel more comfortable just because it is more familiar so also this can give us some insight into things like when we talk about a comfort zone that you might not be happy there but because you know it more and that is easier and feels better and feels easier in that way, we tend to want to stay in a comfort zone, even if we know changing something might be better. So as you can see, a lot of things we observe in human behavior and things we've noticed make sense in relation to some of these understandings of the brain and how it's working and what's going on. You always knew probably that People like to do the same things and we like routines, but now we can understand it more with this type of framework of seeing the brain and, and what it's doing. So the brain is a predicting machine and the way that it's encoding everything that it experiences also gives us some insight into some things that I had a hard time explaining or trying to understand. So for example, we'll talk about how what the baby experiences is very important in developing things that relate to our personality, our general temperament. Yes, temperament is something you're born with for sure, but we know that the first year and years of life can be very pivotal in how someone develops and who they become and has these effects on them. You know, Eric Erickson talks about that first year of life being a very pivotal one of trust versus mistrust. And you can see that there is something to this, that babies, what they experience in those early days affects things like trust, can affect their attachment and how easily they can securely attach to others, even throughout life. Doesn't mean it's fixed, but can have a huge impact 
on those things. And so it seems obvious in a way, but what I at times had a hard time reconciling is when people say, well, could those things that happen when you're a baby affect you if you can't remember them? So how do we reconcile this, that if you can't remember, or we say you really can't have biographical memories of before a certain age, maybe three, maybe two, but it's, it's definitely around those years, then how can something that happens from zero to one have a profound impact on you and who you are and how you feel and view the world? And I really was felt pretty certain of it that it has an impact when you look at research, when you look at people I've worked with and you hear stories, it does seem very real. And of course, with science, we always have to be careful because our anecdotes and just something we experience can definitely take us the wrong way. We can have obviously our biases and our blind spots that makes us see things in a certain way. But at the same time, when it comes to human experience, our introspection and what we observe can be very valuable. So we, we obviously take it with a grain of salt, but we don't think it's totally meaningless either. And a lot of great thinkers and great writers throughout history, without proof of neuroscience and other things, did have some insights based on just their observations, experiencing other people, and also their own introspection and interoceptive experience within themselves that gave them insights that are quite remarkable. And again, mentioning the book from Monday's show, Veronica O'Keen's book, A Sense of Self, she talked about Marcel Proust, who I've read a few of his books uh, in the last year or so, and how he seemed to be so good at capturing some insights into memory and how things can be triggered from certain experiences that now with neuroscience we're understanding better. He, of course, did not have access because it did not exist, these types of sciences and these types of um, images that we can see in understanding the brain. But clearly he had some insight into it just from his own experience. And so it seemed very real, this sense that if a baby has a you know, hard experience in those early days that they're not taken care of, they experience stress and their needs are not being met that would have an impact. But it was a bit hard for me at times to reconcile this with, well, if it can't be remembered, if we can't even form memories, we're saying, then, well, how is that possible? So when we say can't form memories, that means that you might not be able to verbalize something or recall the memory and describe it in some way. But it doesn't mean that you are not being affected by things. And so when we consider the brain as a predicting machine, really what that means is a lot of times what we're predicting or what the prediction is based on, it doesn't mean we have access to what that is from. Sometimes you do. You go back to a place where you had a beautiful evening with your friend and so you when you go there, you feel something good. And you remember, oh, yeah, because last time I was here, I was with my friend and it was such a nice night. And so it feels clear to you why you have a good feeling or a good association with that place. But every day you're experiencing so many things that you don't really have an awareness of where it's coming from. And this is what we would call our unconscious. And so here's another layer to the story or uh, something I wanted to add. I've discussed how the unconscious, we usually think of it as this dark place mysterious and where we have these really ugly drives or everything is very sexual or everything is very uh, you know something we don't want to show or it's something um, not a good part of us when we think of the unconscious and a big part of that is likely due to the fact that one of the biggest contributors to the concept 
of the unconscious is Sigmund Freud. And a lot of his theories were because he was in the Victorian era, era or very much based on these repressed sexual urges because society was very much suppressing the sexual urges as being not good. And so it was probably very much part of the culture then or what people were experiencing if they were going to talk to him and also his own mindset. But unfortunately, this idea has stuck that the unconscious is all about these dark drives that are really not good. Um, and even when you hear the unconscious, often it brings up this image of these really dark, twisted types of things, when really the unconscious is just so much of our experience or so much of what our brain can encode can't be something that we are aware of in the moment. There's no way for you to be aware of all of those things. And that's good because it's impossible. But when you walk into a situation, then the prediction comes in and it says, based on this situation, this is what I'm expecting. This is what you might feel. This is what you associate. And this is what might create you to act in one way or the other. So coming back to this notion of a baby, what it experiences, it might not be able to describe to you or share, oh, when I was six months old, I remember I had this pacifier that I really liked, but it's going to be encoded in their sensation in their body and in the brain as uh, expectation of what's going on. So if you imagine a child consistently having their needs met so you feel really bad and someone responds to it and then you feel good that's going to create a different type of expectations as compared to if you're feeling really bad and no one meets those needs your expectation of what happens when you don't feel good is going to be affected and to me this is really powerful and um, makes a lot of sense and gives some understanding to something we seem to observe and seemed very intuitive in what we could understand and observe in the world, but we couldn't quite explain. But I think this gives some understanding of explaining how this can happen. How can something we think we're seeing happen? And we couldn't quite explain it before, but with these understandings of the brain and changing the sense of what does memory even mean and realizing that although you think memory is something you can clearly recall and describe, memory is really creating your experience in every moment. So memory doesn't just mean, can you remember where you were two months ago? Constantly, your brain is using its memory of what it's experienced to predict and then live in the moment as well. And so after the break, I'll continue on this, probably sharing a bit more about these early years of life and how they can affect us, but also things like romantic relationships and some of the strange things that we might observe that we do or observe others doing that could be related to these same issues. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So continuing the discussion I started in the previous segment about understanding the brain and what some of the new theories and insights from neuroscience can tell us about the brain more of, as a predicting machine rather than just a thinking machine and how that might give us some insights into some things we observe in humans and human development and the things that we do and feel. So as I was saying, when we look at a baby who is less than a year old and we wonder, well, if they can't form memories and if we're later in life can't remember 
what happened to us, then how would those things that happened to us in those early years affect us? And sometimes parents will say that, you know, I'll, I'll work with the family and say, well, our kid is one and a half. And if we're having these fights, she won't remember them. Right. So um, will that affect them as they get older? These fights wouldn't affect them because they don't remember these things. Or it reminds me of Persian parents. I remember seeing this a lot when their kid is crying. Sometimes they'll say, when you get older, you'll forget. You know, so they're kind of saying, um, uh, I guess, something like that, basically, which is like, when you get older, you're going to forget, which unfortunately for those parents, I have to let them know that uh, even though they might not recall that specific memory, it doesn't mean it's not going to impact them if they get hurt in some way. So you are not so off the hook to think that if our child gets hurt before they can form or recall some type of a biographical memory, it means that it won't impact them in that way. So sorry to those parents who thought that was a way out. Um, so if we experience something when we're younger, we do still encode it in some way. And so this is, as I have talked about on recent shows, my understanding of when we think everything you experience, you remember, which people thought this meant, or at times it's been thought of, and people will still think that means that if anything has happened to me, I can retrieve that memory like a filing cabinet and then bring it out and report and repeat what happened. And that's missing on many marks. First of all, we don't remember anything perfectly in the sense that it's going to be accurate to what happened because it's going to be filtered through our experience. And then over time, uh, memories change whether we want to or not. And each time you retrieve a memory, um, it changes. But the way that I understand that everything we experience, we remember, not in the sense of how we can recall it, but that it's impacting or leaving an imprint on our brain and body that then might affect how things impact us later or what we predict and do in the future. So if you experience trauma during childhood, it doesn't mean you necessarily will have a memory of it, let's say before um, age one or two. You might not be able to recall it, but it could leave an impact on the body. It reminds you of, um, is it... Vanderkalk, I forgot his first name, Basser Vanderkalk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. Very, very good book. And I think it lends even more um, credence to his argument in that book that the body, when we talk about body memory, I think it's still coming from the brain in a way, or maybe it's stored in the body too in some way, but that when things happen to us, it still can get triggered even if you can't recall it in a way of being able to describe the memory, but it can impact you. I shared this story where I re realized that when I would go get a, a haircut and sometimes they trim your beard or they shave your beard, when they would put my head back and then to come with the, the blade, the uh, straight edge blade to cut it or, you know, shave that part of my neck, I would realize my chest would get tight and I would get anxious and I was not really sure why. I thought, oh, maybe it's because I'm leaning back in a way or am I nervous because of the razor and they might cut me. And then I had this insight one time that it's very likely because when I was about three years old, I had to go to the hospital for what was asthma or maybe allergies, but regardless, I couldn't breathe and they had to do a tracheotomy where they had to open my throat so I could breathe. And I still have the scar from that. And I could feel that it was similar to that feeling because I was being laid back and someone was coming to me with a sharp instrument and it was probably triggering that anxiety from those experiences and it was quite a revelation when I realized I was like oh that makes sense so it's still stored in my body and my brain this type of a 
um, interaction. I'm being, I'm laying back. My neck is in a way exposed. Something is coming to my neck with a sharp object, and it's making me anxious. And it made sense, and it didn't make my anxiety disappear. But with that understanding, I was a little bit able to remind myself or even prepare, not that I would get so nervous, but that, okay, maybe when I go back, there might be this feeling or, you know, that's why you're feeling it. So it's okay. And so using my, maybe it's like your prefrontal cortex, which can then calm down. There are these signals between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, the emotional center. You, I maybe I'm able to a little bit calm myself down. It's interesting. It's almost like a, the soothing that a parent can do, but now we self-soothe. So it made it a little bit easier. And now when it's it happens, I don't feel that sensation. And as I said, it wasn't that I would get so anxious, but I just noticed a tightening in my chest and a feeling of anxiety all of a sudden would rush to me. So the body is keeping the score, but we are often not aware of what is creating that feeling. And this is when we talk about whether it's in therapy and a lot of psychodynamic therapy, this is at times the goal or the, one of the aims is to make the unconscious conscious. And I do think there is value in that because the more we understand what we're feeling, but then also the why, it can give us some insights to understand ourselves better and then to potentially act differently in the future. So as a baby, you might not remember what happened to you in the case that you can say, oh yeah, I remember when I was you know, four months old, I would cry for a long time before you would feed me. They won't remember that, but if they were not having their needs met and they're crying and crying and in this discomfort and pain and no one came to them, it could affect their expectations now of what happens when they don't feel good, of how they expect something to soothe them, whether it's someone or that something is gonna calm them down. And so that could affect how they feel in general and how they feel when they don't feel good. So to me, these new insights and understandings about the brain, uh, I think it's really fascinating that it can give us some understanding of things that we observed but couldn't quite understand or explain, or even it seemed to counter uh, act or contradict what we thought. Well, if we're saying those things affect us, but you can't remember them, how could that be the case? But now with what I've explained these last few minutes, hopefully we can see that there can be an explanation that I think makes a lot of sense and does feel right too. Again, we don't want to go totally on that, but I think our experiences do match that. Uh, and to me, that's a, a nice feeling. Also going, it is a feeling itself of when things make sense, something feels resolved that uh, could explain this in that way. So another area that we can relate to this or is related to this is our choices of romantic partners. So uh, in, in Harville Hendricks's book, Getting the Love You Want, he proposed this theory, and I don't know if he was the first one to make it this um, clear, but others had as well, but he really was talking about how we are attracted to the negative parts of our parents when we're looking for someone to be with. And he was saying it's because we want to resolve those issues that came up in our relationships with our parents, how it made us feel about ourselves and in our connection and relationship with them. And so as a result, we would seek out people like them to then resolve those issues. And so you would find that someone who, for example, had a very controlling mother who they say they hated that she was so controlling ends up finding a controlling wife and it's very puzzling but he observed this time and time again and i've seen it myself in my own uh, first just observations of people but then also in my practice you do see this happen a lot and it's kind of kind of surprising why would i choose someone 
who has these negative qualities that I experienced as negative and I disliked so much. And it was hard for me to get this. You know, we would tell even clients, well, unconsciously, you might have been drawn to them because people will say, well, no, but at the beginning, uh, I couldn't tell that this woman was controlling when we first met her. She didn't even show me that at all. It came out later. And we'd say, well, unconsciously, you might have picked that up. And it seems a little bit abstract, and it is, but it becomes a little bit abstract when you recognize that, again, you might not be conscious of the predictions that are going on, but when you see this person, they might trigger within you this feeling of a few things. One is there's a familiarity. So something about them feels familiar. And so maybe you're like, I feel like I've known this person more than you know, just meeting them right now. It's almost like we're connected in some way. And so sometimes we might go to some mystical place and, you know, it's something religious or spiritual. I obviously can't rule those things out, but I think there's also another explanation that they could be reminding you of someone and triggering those feelings of that person in ways that you might not even quite understand. And so this is where our unconscious is very powerful, that it can take in all this information and synthesize something that it has this connection that this person, something about them is like this person. And you don't really get all of that information. You just get this pull towards that individual that I, I really want to be with this person or be around them or they're so interesting or intriguing or they feel so comfortable to me. And also Harville Hendricks mentions that in the book of the sense of home, which is something we, we can recognize in people that they oftentimes go towards something unhealthy, but it feels familiar and it can be strange. Again, why would I go towards someone who had this negative aspect of my childhood? I saw how bad that was. Wouldn't I want to get as far away from that as possible? That would make sense. But also because it's familiar and it feels comfortable, there can be a pull and a draw and an attraction towards that person. So here again, if we become aware of our unconscious, if we try to understand our childhood and what we went through, our relationships with our parents and how we feel about them and what qualities they have, we can go with a little more awareness into our romantic relationships. It doesn't mean you can just turn on and off your attraction to certain people. That's not something that's completely in your control or really much in your control. But you might become more aware of what's drawing you to someone and recognize that at times it could be something unhealthy. And actually, a lot of times when you're head over heels for someone too quick, too soon, too fast, everything feels so exciting. It very often is because it's triggering these old memories. So it's as if there's this connection there, but it's not between you and them. It's really between you and your dysfunction and you and your dysfunctional past and your wounds and the problems that you had in childhood and in those important relationships. And of course, you form an attachment bond with your parents. And now in this new romantic relationship, it's using some sort of the same brain circuitry of creating another attachment bond. So understandably, it's going to be pulling on some of those same and similar types of things. So for me, this is also gives some credence to those arguments of we get attracted to unconsciously the people who remind us of our past or our parents and things and even the negative parts in some ways when we understand that what the neuroscience tells us about the brain and how the brain is working and what it's doing to me it makes more sense now again I observed it and it seemed right but I couldn't quite explain it or didn't have 
the scientific explanations because the science was not quite there, but more and more it is getting there, these understandings of the brain more as a predicting machine rather than just a thinking machine. So we can see that even if we don't know why we're being drawn towards something, um, there can be some explanation. And actually Jung, who, who was a very insightful individual, he has some quote, and I don't have it in front of me, but it's something like, if you don't make the conscious unconscious, you will be doomed to repeat your past and call it fate. Meaning that if you don't understand what's happened to you and your unconscious and the things you feel and the things you're drawn towards, you're going to keep doing the same things. You keep getting attracted to the same type of people, creating the same types of relationships, but you will think it's fate or sometimes people think, oh, my luck. Look at the men I keep, you know, I did, I, I get to be with or look at the women I'm with. I'm so unlucky. And yes, there's definitely luck in life, but at times we're not aware of what's drawing us towards these things. It's almost like these invisible strings are pulling at us like a marionette and they're pushing us this way, that way, and it seems like it's just happening, but we might not be aware of what those strings, where are they coming from? And it is from these unconscious feelings that we have, this unconscious that we carry with us that is pulling us and pushing us in directions that seem like fate when really it's coming from within us. So these themes, and we can see it in various aspects of life, I focus on just a few of them, but wanted to share some insights that I felt like by by thinking about these different um, learnings from the brain and neuroscience, and then looking at how they might relate to experiences we have and we observe in other humans, and how it can make more sense uh, with those new understandings. So just wanted to share a bit about that. Um, we'll take some calls after the break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 3104410555. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Uh, yes, uh, I'm... Is me on the air? Yes, you are. Thanks for calling. Yeah, thank you uh, for your time. Sure. Yeah, my question is about uh, parents who are immigrant and in a sudden they have to crush all their mindfulness from the from a different country that they have come from mm-hmm. uh, with all those different uh, ideologic. Uh, uh, thoughts going on they have to it's just like you're building your mind you're building a high rise and in a sudden you have to crush all that you have built mm-hmm. and many people helped you to build that and you have to start uh, rebuilding new mindset and you have to teach it to your kid and my my question is regarding my young adult kids that uh, I never had their experience in my life and I married like when I was in my 34 and I moved from Iran to US. I never had uh, travel even to my very closest country and I I am from a a very small city in Iran and uh, I never had even those experiences that uh, young adults had had it in Tehran, you know, or had it in Tehran at the time that I was uh, living over there. Mm-hmm. And in a sudden, I have to teach 
all these uh, mindset in America to my kids, and I don't know how to how to look at it or how to think of it or okay. how to teach it to my kids. So let me <laughs> let me ask I'm you. Like, yeah, I mean, it, you, it's a very. I don't know what to do. I needed to get sure. some uh, some kind of recommendation from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, let's how talk about how to deal with yeah. the storm. Or <laughs> it is very yeah. You know, it's obviously challenging to move um, countries at any age, but especially when you're. An adult. I'm not sure if you said when you're 34 you moved. Uh, you yeah, know, re- I was 34. Yeah. So it relates I to what I was. Married. Yeah. So relating to what I was talking about in these previous segments too, of how our brain starts to, you know, lay down its predictions and, and expectations from the world, and then you move, and then there are different cultural expectations, obviously language and other things as well, but just exactly. other things that you have to, to and deal with. I had with. my whole people and family behind those thoughts you know <laughs> of course uh, and that's the other thing is that it can it's not just about you know when we look at culture even sometimes people think well culture means the language the food the music things like that and it is those things but it's also some more uh, impactful things like what's right and wrong how should men and women be what is appropriate uh-huh. way of interacting so it, it creates this feeling of morality or it's related to morality of what's right and wrong how we should live our lives and not live our lives. And so then when we move and the morals are different, it's not just, oh, these are different ways of looking at these things. It can feel very wrong. Like the person thinks, oh, if my kids do this, that means they're bad or they're doing something wrong, where it could be coming from our own expectations based on the culture that we experience. Now, let me ask you a few questions to understand more about your situation. So if I understood you moved here at 34, how old were your kids and how many kids do you have? Yeah, my when daughter you moved? is uh, 22 right no, but, now and my son uh, is right. but how, 17. How old were they when you moved here? Um, oh, they born here. They were born here. Okay. So yeah, that's a different born here. Yeah. I just married when I was at my 34 and I had to uh then I had my babies, you know. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So one thing that's interesting is, you know, you said, how do I teach them about this new culture? And sometimes actually what we need to do is get out of the way to let them learn the new culture. But parents can doing. <laughs> yeah, and parents can have a hard time with that because it can feel like one. The thing about the new culture is that it we don't think it's as good. We feel like we had the right way of living because that's how we grew up. And as you said, your parents and your all your relatives were telling you to be a certain way. So that can feel a little bit odd to let them not be the way that you think is right based on where you grew up. And also what parents can feel is like their kids are going away from them. So if my kids become more American, they're also not just becoming more American, they're becoming less like me. So it can make it hard for parents to feel comfortable allowing their children to get immersed in this new culture. I'm sorry, I'm interrupting you. Uh, the good thing about me is I don't think that way. I don't want my way, but I don't like something like alcohol, you know, or marijuana, or mm-hmm. uh, some kind of open sex too many, you know, to exposing to the sex behavior too many times. Uh, you know, those kind of things that exactly have been major in my own mindset mindset back in my 
in our country, you know, in my country. Yeah. Uh, just a few, a few things that it might be destroying also, and I don't know how to how, how to manage my mind to <laughs> to be out of my kids' way, you know. Hmm. So the thing is to you know what, what is tough, especially with your kids. I think you said your daughter. Did you say twenty three? Twenty two. Twenty two, and your son is. 17. 17. So, you know, in general, the amount of control we have over our kids is is limited. Um, but especially as they get older and they're adults and they make their own decisions, it can be tough as parents to, to go back, regardless of culture, but just in general, to allow our children who are now adults to make their own decisions because you can't control them. So let's say you're saying marijuana. You can't control if they smoke or they don't smoke or how much they smoke. Mm-hmm. If they want to talk to you about it, they can or maybe they won't. But really to think, I have to control this, that is something that you can't do. And so realizing that can affect how you approach dealing with them, that my role isn't to stop them from doing something because I can't. If I want to talk to them about it, I can. But there's no way that you're going to be able to control uh, what they are doing or not doing. So tell me, what is your question or what is it that you're trying to deal with right now or figure out? Uh, yeah, like uh, like this kind of smoking behavior mm-hmm. with friends. Mm-hmm. You know, friends, my daughter is saying she's not doing it, but I see she has friends that uh, having, that doing this uh, this behavior Okay. And uh, she spends uh, more times at night uh, with friends, with the same friends. And every time she's telling me, oh, no, I'm not doing anything wrong. Uh, I'm not doing that. And also the good thing is every time I text my daughter uh, every, every minute, she texts me back. But she doesn't want to talk to me. She's not responding the phone by talking, but texting, mm-hmm. writing. Uh, well, I don't know how to how to train my brain <laughs> stay out of it and well, yeah, just you, trust your daughter. You're gonna have to yeah trust her, and even the way you're describing, I text her and she responds. It is good, but there does seem like you want this reassurance, like she needs to tell me what she's doing or what's going on exactly and And she's doing no i'm not doing it but and then also i have seen like the device in her bag in her purse you know by by accident i saw it you know uh i saw the e-cigar device in her purse Mm -hmm. but she's i told her that what is this Uh, she said oh this is not mine this is my friend and uh i in my heart, I ask myself, why, what is, why I have to carry my friends with something like this in my bag or in my purse, you know? But she doesn't necessarily, but, and that's different from marijuana. They can, you know, it could be nicotine or even some of them don't have um, nicotine in them. But regardless, this is what I mean by, you know, it seems like you're thinking, what do I need to do to get her to do something or not do something? But I, I would encourage you to recognize you can't do something about it. So even if you don't like it, it might not feel good or you won't enjoy it, but you might have to accept that I'm not going to control what she's doing. I'm not going to make her do this or not do this. That's not your, not even responsibility. It's not even your capability. You can't do it. Mm -hmm. 
So I would also want you to look at what else you have happening in your life, because if your focus is just on them and what they're doing and not doing, then you, if I tell you, well, don't think about that, but now what are you going to think about? So tell me about your own life, not about your kids. What do you have going on in your own life? Uh, what uh, what do you many many things going on? Okay, like so, what do you what do you do regularly with your time that is not about your kids? Yeah, I have uh, I try to have uh, manage um, uh, I try to have a full time job, but mm-hmm. at the meantime, I found that I don't we don't we can't afford to have like daycare uh, expenses uh, were expensive. So I try to be half a time, like hourly, uh, low pay work, and mostly stay at home mom. But that's right uh, now. I try to say drop the kids at school and then no, but I'm, take I'm asking, them off from school and stay but, home. Okay, I'm asking about right now. Uh huh. Right now, yeah, I, it is the same. I'm. I am. Uh, I'm not. Uh, driving them anymore yeah but i have the uh, hourly job but but looking for other jobs right now to stay away from my kids try to help myself but i haven't found okay a full-time job yet i'm trying my best uh uh, but is it still the same and we had to have we had to move many times because of my husband's job and it was hard for me to establish myself in a a full-time job as a, as an immigrant because he was here when since he was like 16, 17 years old, mm-hmm. and then I came at 34, and uh, it was very hard for me to keep myself in a full-time job. I'm I was I had like two bachelors back in Iran, but here unfortunately because of my in-laws' sickness and having my kids' kids and having like expenses uh, daycare expenses I wasn't able to uh, uh, study back to school again and uh, find a better job unfortunately I have to keep myself in like hourly low pay jobs okay. until I find one or go sure. back to and school and in this age I don't know <laughs> yeah no I understand I mean and you can if you want to go back to school My, what I was trying to bring up was that recognizing especially as your kids get older you need to be less and less involved in their life which yeah. also means you have to see what's happening in your life because your daughter at 22 really i mean she doesn't have to answer to you if she wants to smoke an e-cigarette or oh, she doesn't of course <laughs> right so she doesn't have to answer to you if she's smoking an e-cigarette or isn't or what she's doing um because that's you know her decision to make at this point. I'm not saying I want her to smoke e-cigarettes. I don't think it's good for her, but it's realizing that it's not something you can make it your, you know, almost it seems like you're thinking, how can I find out what she's doing and then figure out what to do? You know, like Exactly. That's my the part of my brain that has grow up rise that mm-hmm. way back in Iran till like 34. And I couldn't crash that. <laughs> Many things crashed. Yeah. But that part I haven't got rid of it and I'm so curious to see what is she doing with her friends and why she's carrying such a device in her purse and uh, that curiosity doesn't leave me alone and um, so, so what do you what think what do you think you're worried about so let's say she's she's smoking that e-cigarette or, and that was her own it wasn't yeah, her friends I, I see she's, she's coughing often mm-hmm. 
and uh, the cough sound like uh, kind of uh, um, like fearful for me. Maybe it's my feeling, mm-hmm. uh, and then that makes me think of maybe this smoke thingy is sorry for the airplane. It's okay. So sorry. Hello. I'm so sorry. Uh, yeah, that's my fear. Fear part that uh, it might have harm for herself. Sure. And her mind, you know, based on even those uh, medic uh, side of these kind of things that they are uh, advertising, I don't see good thing about them. I, I I understand. I'm not saying it's good for her, but it's realizing you you're not going to be able to do something about it. Yes, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I just want to like your uh, the subject of your thoughts and talks today. How can I keep my brain, my mindset, based on what we how we have raised back in Iran? And you don't have that experience in Iran, of course. Well, and it, yeah, and I I don't obviously, but it's about changing our mindset is always very hard because it's it's automatic. Oh, I get it. What yes. you, but it's real. You have to challenge yourself in a way of saying when you feel something, it doesn't mean that the feeling is completely right, or you have to follow that feeling. So uh-huh. it's going to be tough. And I mean, you're not going to change it completely and we shouldn't expect that. But slowly to recognize that I worry about things, even though I can't do something about them. So uh-huh. I have to see how I can deal with it. It's not something I always have to go to her. Because what I observe with so many families in situations like yours or just in adolescence in general, because you get preoccupied with I have to see what both kids, but let's say right now we're talking about your daughter, what she's doing, what she's not doing, make sure she doesn't do this or do that. Your relationship changes from being a mother and a daughter who have a relationship to you almost just monitoring and trying to manage her behavior or stop her from doing this or that. So your relationship with her usually gets worse when your focus becomes on, I have to get her to stop smoking or first I have to even know if she is doing it. Then you become almost like an investigator. It becomes like you're the police and she's a potential criminal rather than you're like a mother and a daughter. So part of changing, it's hard, but we first have to say, do I want to change? And I think what's going to be hard for you might be that this feeling is that, no, no, this is right. If I stop caring about this, something bad happens to my daughter or I'm not going to be protecting uh-huh. her. Or maybe you feel guilty. Am I a bad mom if I don't protect her from these things? But it's realizing that you can't change those things. You you can't make her stop. And so I have to re- realize what I, I can control. For myself. <laughs> well, I mean, I think everyone would benefit from therapy. <laughs> yeah. And if you if you think that you you know you, if you're thinking that way, then I would say absolutely go and and deal with it. Yes. Because a lot of times, what parents what happens in in the relationship between parents and their kids is we have our feelings and then we go put it on them. And rather than we have to sometimes deal with those feelings on our own, it's not for your daughter to reduce your anxiety about her. Or she has to calm you down or reassure you, you know, and probably, you know, now I don't know, but there's a good chance that was her own e-cigarette that you saw, but clearly she feels like she has to lie to you and that's not good. We don't want that to be part of your relationship with her. And that's something you also should realize that you can try to ask her, try to figure out, but she's always going to, you know, if she wants to hide something from you, she can. And especially she's 22, I don't know at what age she'll 
you know, she's moving out or life moves on, you're going to have zero control over what she does. So to shift the focus away from as a mom, I need to stop her from doing this or get okay. her to do this. Uh, and but, then uh, yeah. one, one question, doctor, uh, how can we make appointments with uh, you for our kids? Well, I mean, based on their age, yeah. Well, if, you know, first thing first is you have to make sure they want to go to therapy. So if they don't want to, then I don't think therapy helps anyone that doesn't want to be there. Uh, Yeah, she she wants to go. Not like I I tell her, like, you have have mental problems. No. Just, uh, just, just counseling for life she she's very open to okay. go to therapist and i'm sure the smart therapist can go through deep points and do what um, I don't know <laughs> See, what you is don't... happening. <laughs> well, the <laughs> reason why I asked that, I'm, I'm, I think it's very good for anyone. Therapy can be very helpful for anyone. The reason why I'm asking yeah. is a lot of times parents and the way you were saying it is almost like you have some, you know, desire for her to, to become a certain way or something to happen. But I want you to realize no, no. that if she goes to therapy. I'm sure the therapist is going to go against me. <laughs> It, it well not against you, but will be obviously trying to help your daughter figure her, herself yes. out and, and go through that process. So in general, therapy Wrong is a, right. about self awareness, and and sometimes even family therapy can be something um, you can do. As far as my my office number, I won't say it right now. If you hang on, we'll give it to you during the the commercial break. Uh huh. Okay. So just hang on. Uh, I'm going to go to a commercial break now, but I'm going to we'll uh-huh. put stay on hold, and then um, we'll, we'll give you the number during the break. Okay, so I need uh, I need to write down the number. I don't have ten right now. Yeah, but I'm going to put you on hold, so don't worry. You'll have a okay, minute. Okay. Yeah, but, I'm yeah. going to go. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Sure. Nice talking to you. Nice to talk to you. Okay. All right. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number three one zero four four one zero five five five. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So to begin the show, I, I was talking about some understandings and insights about the brain and how they can help us understand some things we've observed in humans, things we do, behaviors we have, including things like who we get attracted to. And so I uh, didn't finish all the thoughts on that and thought I could share a bit more about why we pick someone who has those negative qualities of our parents. So as I was saying, we have always told people, well, it's an unconscious thing. You know, rarely does someone say, oh, I, I want to marry that person or I'm attracted to them because they're like my mom or like my dad at first. Um, it's usually something they become aware of over time. And oftentimes they don't feel good about it when people have that realization. It can feel odd uh, that they would marry someone or be attracted to someone like their parent. Uh, but as I mentioned before, there's the familiarity, which is a big part of it. Something about this person person is triggering those things. And we can't say exactly what it is. And it doesn't mean that it's something mystical or something we can't explain. It could be something about their facial expressions and how they express things. Um, Something about how they look, of course. But very often it's about things, I think, that are more an emotional way that you can feel there's a way that they interact that is uh, act and interact that makes you somehow feel that tinge of familiarity. So the familiarity makes us feel comfortable and makes us feel like it's home, it feels safe, all those things, which is interesting because sometimes we'll feel safe with them, even though our parent, our parents didn't make us feel safe at all. 
they hurt us, they abused us, or at least in any way we felt hurt by them, even if it's not full-on abuse, which is strange because why would that feel like something we want? But if we understand that familiarity always makes us feel more comfortable, we could see why there would be a draw there. Now, another part, and this is actually explained and discussed in, in Harville Hendricks's book, Getting the Love You Want, where he talks about people being attracted to their... Um, someone who has the negative qualities of their parents is that he also talks about there's a desire for this resolution and so we can explain this in a way like if you had this very negative mother who was always harsh and criticizing and critical of you and never made you feel good enough you find someone who's like them who has those negative qualities is critical and all that but this time i'm gonna make them like me and love me i'm gonna win their approval and their love and then it'll lead to some feeling of resolution so there's a sense that i want to get some sense of peace with that or i'm going to this time be good enough unfortunately parents treating their kids in ways that aren't good the par the kids don't know well maybe my mom or dad has some mental issues or they're the problem the child unfortunately is going to internalize the feeling i have the problem i'm not good enough if i was a better boy or girl my mom would love me or wouldn't yell or wouldn't do those things rather than there's some problem with them only when we get older are we more aware of our parents not as these just almost mythical type of things that are omnipotent and do everything right and are all powerful we realize okay no they're humans with flaws too and wait they shouldn't have done that or they didn't need to do those things and they could have been very different unfortunately a lot of the things we feel about ourselves have already be, been ingrained at that point and so it can take time and it can be difficult to change them as a result so we have this sense that we are somehow good not good enough based on how we were treated and there can be this feeling that if i can actually overcome this and get them to love me then i will feel good enough i am good enough i've resolved it i also think the work or in the book the hidden spring by mark solms where he talks about his work with other uh, neuroscientists as well but looking at homeostasis as a very powerful force or indicator of understanding humans and what we do this feeling that if i'm cold I have this feeling of not being in homeostasis that doesn't feel good and I'm going to do whatever I can to get to warmth to a comfort level that is a, a comfortable temperature and based on the feeling I can feel like if it's good or bad right if I do something and it makes me more cold I'm going to feel even more of that pain going away from homeostasis but if I do something that's warming me up it'll feel relieving and it'll feel nice until I get to a more uh, moderate temperature that is comfortable and healthy for me and now I will feel okay and so i think a way i can understand this issue of being attracted to someone who has these negative qualities of your parents is that there is a removal of or going away from a homeostasis or feeling resolved something feels unsettled and not okay i'm not good enough or i'm not getting loved or i'm not getting this feeling and so there is this pull and this desire to bring things back to this homeostasis and to resolve that issue. You maybe have even experienced this in smaller ways. Sometimes you'll realize there's something I need to do and it gives you this kind of feeling like something is unsettled 
And then you make, oh yeah, I need to call that thing about the whatever that maybe you were not looking forward to, but you knew you had something you had to take care of that was giving you a feeling. And so this goes back to this sense that we have a feeling and you might not even be in touch with it first, the what, but then there's also the part of the why. Why am I feeling a little bit unsettled? And then you remember, oh yeah, I have to do that thing that I wasn't looking forward to. So we can see how the feeling makes you become aware of something is not quite right. And so similarly, when we're picking a partner, it could be understandable that one, we are attracted to someone who feels like home. There's a familiarity there, but that also we get attracted to someone that might help us resolve something. There is some type of a resolution and our understandings of the brain make this make more sense, which I think is good because before, even for me, when I would read a lot of theories about the unconscious and theories about what we do, it all seems very abstract and it becomes very, uh, you know, mystical and all these things are so complex. The unconscious is this thing that's so bizarre and this weird thing that we don't understand, but now it makes much more sense. Our brain has encoded a lot of experiences and a lot of things and patterns and different um, experiences, and we don't have awareness of all of them because we can't have a conscious awareness at any given moment of all of those things, but they can in a way operate beneath the surface or beneath our awareness a lot of the times, and we can become more aware of the things that we do or the why of what we are feeling. And the whys are not going to be something that you know for sure. Even in therapy, at times you might work with a client and make a type of an interpretation that it seems like you're feeling this, or could this be related to this? There's no guarantee. There's no way we can say for sure, this is why you're feeling this. But at times, even it's interesting to me, the words that people will, will say is that, you know, that resonates with me, what you shared. And to me, it seems like it's like there's some balance that it's not uh, creating a mismatch with how you feel when you're hearing that thing and taking it in. It matches well. And sometimes it doesn't. It's like, no, something about that doesn't even say quite feel right. It doesn't really quite match the feeling that we're having inside. So I think that's really interesting when we we consider how we make these interpretations and try to understand ourselves better. We won't know for sure, just like I don't know for sure if what makes my chest get a little tight is that it's bringing up this memory of possible trauma when I was a child. But it seems right and it makes sense and it does help me and what I think understand myself better. Now, in the last few minutes in the segment, I also wanted to talk about intuition, which is something that, again, because we sometimes haven't understood what it is or because it really is a lot of times you kind of know something is right or it feels right, but you're not quite sure why. So it almost seems like it's coming from some other place, that it's not coming from within you. It's something spiritual or mystical or from God or something else is going on because I can't explain how I know what it seems like I know. But this is going back to the same notion that there's so much that you know, but you're not consciously aware of why. So you see something happening, something doesn't quite seem right. And I remember from the book uh, Blink by Malcolm Gladwell, I think there was these uh, people that were looking at radars and they had to determine if 
it was an enemy jet or something, or if it was one of their own jets. And somehow this person who was looking at the radars time and time again was able to say, you know what, I'm sure this is a, I forgot what it was, either he knew it was an enemy plane or a friendly plane. And so because of that, it, it either saved lives one way or the other by not killing their own comrades or by killing someone before they killed them. And he didn't know why he was able to determine that those blips on the radar were one thing rather than something else. Later, they were able to determine that when it was, you know, one thing versus the other, it acted or it did something different on the radar machine, whatever that exactly was, but he wasn't even aware of what he was picking up on. But the feeling, and this is where, again, feelings are so powerful, it felt like enemy warcraft or enemy uh, aircraft. And so he decided that that was he had to make a split second decision he trusted his intuition which because he wasn't aware of the why but he knew what he was feeling and they acted on it and it turned out to be right it wasn't necessarily something mystical or mythical they later could understand it but he himself didn't know the why and so constantly we're having feelings like okay i kind of like this person i like this thing i don't like this thing and sometimes we're aware of it oh yeah i like it for these reasons and a lot of times we're not and even here again we don't always know why we like something or don't like something we might think we do but often the reasoning is happening after you're having a feeling response so I show you a picture of someone and you say, I like them or I don't like them. And then I might ask you why and say, oh, like, you know, their smile looks friendly and their eyes look kind or something like that. And it could be true, but it might be that it's triggering someone from your past that you connect with being favorable. And so you have that reaction. It reminds me of this study they did where they'd show men two pictures uh, of, of women and say, which one do you like more? And they would point to one of them and they'd put them face down and then hand them the other picture and then say, well, what did you like about her? And then they would come up with reasons. Well, I, you know, I think her eyes are really nice or she's my type in this way or whatever it might be. And so it was obvious that the attraction was one thing, but the reasons that we give for that attraction, we're very often unaware of what's making us like or dislike something. So intuition is something that can only be brought about by experience because you have to have these things get encoded that you keep noticing. For example, that radar uh, technician or whatever he was, he must have somehow been taking in through all these experiences, these patterns, but he was not aware of what was making him realize all the things that made one pattern different from the others. And then in that moment, it just felt a certain way. Now, to go to the other extreme, you know, I think intuition has a lot of value, as we're seeing here. Again, it's not something mystical or mythical. It's based on something very real. You have a what feeling, but you're not exactly sure of the reasons why. But the what feels very strong. So I think there can be a lot in really trusting your intuition, listening to your intuition, and really giving a lot of credence to that, especially if it's an area where you have a lot of experience. Now, sometimes people go to the other extreme and they say your intuition is never wrong. And I think that's a very dangerous mindset as well. In general, almost nothing is all or nothing, even though I know saying that makes itself almost all or nothing. But almost nothing is always right or always wrong. But just going back a few minutes, what I was talking about when we we're saying who you get attracted to, oftentimes our intuition about who to be with can be very wrong. Actually, especially if you had a 
rough childhood or if you had really bad relationships with your parents or experienced emotional or physical or sexual abuse from them, you might be certain that your intuition of who you're attracted to might be almost exactly wrong. It's almost always going to take you to the wrong place unless you've done some work on that. So that radar, using that same kind of uh, terminology that's attracting you to this person saying, oh, this is friendly fire, this is a good person, is almost actually going to be very wrong all the time, unfortunately. So it would be nice to be able to say, you know what, always trust your intuition, always trust your gut because it's always right, but it's just not that simple. We do want to listen to it, but it's a source of information. And sometimes there's some wisdom there that you might not be able to comprehend or be conscious of the why. But we also want to be aware that there could be areas where your intuition is going to lead you astray. There are some biases that we all have in certain areas in the ways we think. There are some experiences we have that might make us, let's say, over overwhelmingly not like something because of some experiences that we had. Oh, you went to, you know, this country and had a really bad experience. Like, oh, don't go there. It's so bad. Well, you had a bad experience because something very specific happened to you. It doesn't mean visiting that country is bad, but you can recognize that. Oh, you know, I had a bad experience there. So my first thought when you say you're going to Spain is don't go. But, you know, I'm sure it's quite nice. This is what happened to me. That would be if you had an awareness of where that feeling is coming from. Oftentimes we don't. You might not realize that it's because of that experience. So intuition is not something mythical or mystical. We can understand it. But it does mean that a lot of times you don't understand where it's coming from within you in that moment. And it would be nice to think to say, I can always trust it or never trust it. But the truth of the matter is there's no black or white when it comes to this either. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to another caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Thanks for calling. Hi. How are you, doctor? Good. Thank you. Um, thank you for your time. Sure. I just had um, a couple of things that I would love to get your opinion and thoughts on. So mm-hmm. I'm a 30-year-old, um, never been married, um, don't have any kids. And so for the last five or six years, I've kind of taken the time to, I, I was sick for a little while, and then I um, just really wanted to kind of uh, get to know myself because I was in two long-term relationships before that. Um, now coming back into the dating world, um, it's interesting what you were just mentioning about intuition and um, who you're attracted to and kind of the radar for attraction. I'm just having a little bit of a hard time um, really deciphering who's right for me mm-hmm. um, because I do see the long-term possibilities and I'm a very half glassful kind of person. So I enjoy the company of friends, family, lots of people. Um, but when it comes to selecting a mate and someone that's going to be, you know, a, a marriage material, and, and I do want to have a family, I'm just having kind of a hard time making choices and, and deciphering and any advice that you have along along those lines. Okay, sure. And obviously we'll have to get a little bit deeper and to understand exactly what you're going through. But just to make sure I'm clear, so you're 30, you uh, want to get married and have, have kids, but you're... I'm reco- 38. 38, I heard you wrong, I'm sorry, 38. You want to get married, have kids, but you're recognizing you, well, you said you had two long-term relationships, but from what I'm gathering, you sense that you might like being around people, but then when it comes to actually making that commitment or picking someone to be with for the rest of your life, and maybe I'm saying it that way makes it sound even more dramatic, you feel that you have a hard time, the glass will be half full, so you'll notice 
or maybe you're saying it's half full, you'll see the good or you'll also notice what's missing? So, so it's both. So yeah. I see possibilities in a lot of things, but I, I've, I've become even more picky than before. Okay. Yeah. So it could, there could be a, like a, it could lead to this indecisiveness, almost like yep, a, very much. people kind of like a perfectionist kind of mindset. Mm-hmm. You know, they see, oh, that's a problem. But of course, everyone, including ourselves in every relationship will have some problems. Tell me a bit about these long-term relationships you've been in, what they were like, what happened there. Um, So the first one was from my teenage years into my mid-twenties, and that one was just something I outgrew, and it was something young, and, you know, I I just, I wanted to kind of have my freedom Mm -hmm. um, at the time, and then immediately after, I got into another seven-year relationship, um, and that, you know, we lived together, we had animals together, we, um, it was almost like we were married, but he wasn't sure if he wanted to have kids, and it started to kind of wedge, um, you know, something between us, and um, he ended up actually um, cheating on me, and so it was kind of a terrible breakup. And um, and then that's around the same time that I ended up getting kind of sick, and my uncle was diagnosed with cancer, and all of these things happened. So I just, um, you know, focused on my own healing um, and just kind of getting to know who I was. And what, um, and so, yeah. yeah, so if I may ask, what was the medical issue you dealt with personally? Um, it was something that went undiagnosed for a couple of years. Um, it ended up being like an infection that kind of grew to other parts. And Oof. so it was being in and out of the hospital um, or being in and out of really urgent care mm. um, and just, you know, trying to figure out going to a bunch of different specialists over a year and a half. So pretty traumatic time. Yeah. And I would say I was clinically depressed at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, just it was a lot to kind of bear the burden of. And I, again, being a very resilient, optimistic person, I figured that I had tried every doctor every stone and so it kind of led me to holistic medicine and that's a whole other story about you know acupuncture and um, breath work and and meditation and those were some of the tools that really helped me um once the actual physical stuff was taken care of um (laughs) got it okay yeah no and i'm glad it seems like so now it's something that's been resolved as far as the health goes that's that's wonderful okay and then the relationship you know you said it was seven years and he was unsure about kids was that uncertainty there from the beginning um in the beginning he would i wasn't even sure so okay. it wasn't anything that either one of us really focused on we were you know in our 20s and having a good time the fun was more important at that time than to talk about the serious stuff <laughs> for, for seven years <laughs> well no 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 and it, so it started to kind of become a topic as yeah. i kind of grew realized that it was important to me and so we went to a couple of years of therapy um and um and just kind of tried everything but he he would just keep reassuring me that he was as close to wanting kids or or it being a thing for him as he he had ever gotten with anybody so it kind of gave me this ongoing hope um but he wouldn't just say no it was just kind of like he wasn't sure and it wasn't the right time and he thought he could be ready one day yeah, the reason why I'm asking it's not that it's clear, but sometimes we pick someone that we know things won't end up working mm-hmm. out because it's a little bit safer. So when you say you're with him seven years and and I get it, it seems like you feel like he was selling you some hope. Um, I do think when it comes to something like having kids, if someone's like, eh, I guess like that's usually not a good sign because it should be something they really want. It's obviously a big mm-hmm change and you know you have to really want that and uh, you know be excited about it obviously you might be anxious about it too you, it would make sense to have anxiety about having kids just like you could have some anxiety about getting married uh, but that feeling of it seems like from what you're saying it wasn't very convincing 
Uh, but, you know, you were hoping, I guess, you know, and you're selling you some of that hope. But it's something for you to look at is this sense of like you're a little bit afraid of making that plunge into that full on commitment. And he was a good candidate to allow you to kind of stay close to it, but know that you wouldn't have to actually go into it, if that makes sense. So you're kind of dipping your your feet in the pool, but you don't have to jump in because he'll never make you go in there. Yeah, no, I mean, I could I could see aspects of that. Um, but I think also another thing just to, that just came to mind is that, you know, I think that I've always had this feeling of yeah, anything good leaving me or I mean, I guess you can call it abandonment. You could call it, you know, just the fear, fear of failure or just some like I always feel like I'm going to mm. like something good is going to leave me. So it's yeah, it's this. Yeah. Well, that, and that can make sense that it's a, it's it's scary to give yourself what you want and you have this you know paradox because like if I want it and I really like it then I have this fear of losing it and that's too scary so maybe I should just never have it fully in the first place which you know then leads to its own issues you know that recognition do you have any idea of where it would be coming from from experiences in your past yeah I mean I think it's definitely from my childhood <laughs> and mm-hmm. I've, I've you know gone to some therapy for this and you know, it was my mother just constantly leaving and coming back. And so, I mean, I, I think I know where it stems from. I guess what I mm. really need kind of clarity or really guidance on is how do I make these choices moving forward and how do I decipher and identify the person that's actually good for me Yeah, um, that's going to be long lasting and, and, and kind of, you know, building a family and all the things that I, that sure. I think I want. <laughs> well, it seems like, you know, this is um, when you, and even the way you said that, I think I want this is a very common right. thing we have is that consciously we know we, we we want something, but there's these fears and anxieties on the, that underneath. And there's kind of this tug of war that sometimes is going on. You know, we want it and we go towards it, but the anxieties and fears pull us back. The more we're aware of them, the more we can counteract them doesn't mean definitely they don't just disappear, but that can help. So it does seem like you want it, but you're recognizing in what you're doing that you maybe don't go towards it in some ways. Just like you might say, I really want to see the view off the edge of this mountain, but because you're afraid of heights, you don't quite get to the, you know, close to the edge because it's too scary. So, you know, you want to see it. You think it would be beautiful to see it, but you're also so afraid that you, the fear doesn't let you actually approach it. So when you mentioned with your mother going and coming, if you could tell me, what do you mean by that? Like she would actually leave the home for periods of time or what was yeah going she like would leave me with my grandmother she had um a little bit of postpartum and I, I was first you know her first child and so she had a hard time managing that and um we were in Iran actually and so she it's, it's very customary for you know the parents to leave your kids with your grandparents and because every you know the whole family kind of takes care of the kids mm-hmm. so she would leave me in a different town in Mashhad and um she would go back to Tehran and she would just go back and forth um, throughout pretty much from probably from the age of two to about six, seven. Um, and so she would come and have these moments of, you know, we would celebrate my birthday or something that would be really exciting. And she would almost make me fall in love with her because I very much idolized her. Um, and then, you know, she would, she would leave and no one would explain to me why she was leaving. So I would internalize it and, you know, have these crazy, like crying, um, sessions where my grandmother Mm. would tell me where, I would think that I did something wrong, you know? Wow. That that's heartbreaking. And it's it's also sad because we can see the parallels are almost right in front of our eyes as you describe it of what you just shared. 
Um, even you said fall in love, which is the, it is the same feeling. You'd she would come back, you would fall in love with her, and then she would go. And I don't know if they wouldn't tell you when she was going, or you know, regardless, it's going to feel like a surprise. Or it's never going to feel easy. But did would they tell you when she was going to go and come back? Yeah, okay. I had an idea of when she would be leaving. I didn't know when she would be coming back. Mm-hmm. But it, the reason why she would be leaving was unclear to me. Yeah. And as you said, sadly, and I did talk about this earlier in the show, um, usually a child is going to blame themselves if, if something like that happens. You think, what did I do? Because I want this so much. And so, you know, you would fall in love with her and then she would go without you knowing why or exactly when. And then also you wouldn't know when she's coming back. And so we can understand that when it comes to having a partner and falling in love, you want it so much, but it's so scary because so many times you fell in love and had it taken away from you. And so that fear is is very strong, going back to these expectations our brain brings up that it might even be tied into feeling that closeness. As soon as you're starting to feel in love and feel that connection, that attachment to someone, probably attached to that attachment is an anxiety of, oh, when am I going to lose this? Uh, you know, when is this going away? What if I do something wrong? You know, what if it just happens without me knowing why? So we could understand that there could be a fear of getting close to someone. And this makes it, you know, going back to that analogy I was saying, we can get it. It's, I want to see the view. It's so beautiful, but I'm deathly afraid of it too. It feels very, very scary. Um, so that's, that's heartbreaking that you had to go through that. And I, I'm glad though that you said you've went through some therapy that can help I'm sure made you more aware of these types of things, but doesn't necessarily take the whole feeling away. Do you feel like it's gotten this anxiety of of abandonment, as you put it, and anxiety of losing the thing you want so much or you love so much? Do you feel like it's gotten better or worse as you've gotten older? And also, I could imagine your breakup, especially because there was infidelity, could have an impact on that. But how do you see that in yourself um, it's hard to sometimes observe ourselves, but from the yeah. best you can, what do you see? I I think that, you know, I would say in per- like periods of time when I do get close to people, um, but I think I'm pretty good at putting up walls. So yeah. I notice these things about myself. And so whether it's, you know, just, you know, disconnecting from someone and not, not you know, even with my friends, I'll do it. Um, and it's just kind of this, I think it's a, almost like a defense mechanism yeah. or a coping mechanism, mm-hmm. but not dealing with the anxiety so I don't let myself feel them so often yeah um but I think the other piece of it is that I find myself you know if somebody is you know 70% good enough right going back to what you're saying about perfectionism and um it just it, 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 it I feel like I'm I don't want to settle especially now that I've gone through these life experiences and I've gotten to know myself and I think I I think I know mm-hmm. <laughs> what um what would bring me happiness um, like I could tell you the attributes of it, but I still have a hard time finding someone that I think is good enough. Yeah. Well, and I, you know, a few things came to mind as you were sharing about even your friends and how you do think you put these walls. I was imagining like there's like a wall or there's this, you know, um, a place where you can observe this view. And I don't want to per- like perseverate on one analogy, but, you know, you can see the view from a little bit of a distance and it's still very nice. But then you don't let yourself experience it to the full extent of what you could enjoy and even maybe know you want to enjoy. So you enjoy and, you know, you get close with your friends, but it seems like you recognize 
and it's probably the anxiety starts creeping up and you might not even really be aware of that, but you might notice yourself pulling away or, you know, um, being more, oh, I need some alone time, which we do need. And this is where I was saying before, intuition is a, a tricky thing because you might feel like, yeah, I think my, I'm, I'm get the sense I need to be alone more, but it could be coming from this anxiety of getting close and, and what comes with it. And then going back to who you're attracted to, um, after the break, we're getting close to a commercial break, but I want us to continue after the break. We can talk about some of those things and I would definitely, I don't want anyone to settle and we wouldn't want you to settle, but we do have to be careful because we can use that type of, uh, logic or thinking to protect ourselves. Well, I'm not going to settle because I've waited this long, although, you know, I wouldn't want you to settle at any age. Um, but uh, I don't want to settle. So, you know, I shouldn't, I should say no to this person or that person. So it could serve a function of defending yourself from having to go forward because it's like, no, it's because of self-love and I'm having high standards, but it could be a way of protecting yourself more than it's actually doing what's best for you. So after the break, yeah, you can talk about what you see as someone you um, would want to be with, those qualities that you've recognized. And we can explore a bit more of the anxiety that's going to be there no matter what. And that's something we have to be ready for, is that no matter who you're going to be with, no matter how good they are for you, we can be almost certain you're still going to have some anxiety. But we can talk a bit about those issues after the break. How does that sound? That sounds great. Okay. All right. We'll Mm -hmm. be right back. Welcome back. Before the break, we're with the caller. Let's go back to them now. Caller, are you still there? Yep, I'm here. All right. So uh, in the first um, you know, chat, we were having about things you're going through with relationships and we we're able to make some connections with childhood that there could be some fear of abandonment, fear of losing the thing you love so much, which is in its own you know, sentence, very heartbreaking. It's that you want something so much, but you're afraid that if you like it, you could lose it. And so it creates this paradox of how do you approach that? And so I wanted us to talk a bit about, because you did mention, I, I know the qualities of what I'm looking for, and eventually approaching this idea that you're going to have to more than likely jump into something, not jump as in any with anyone, but that there's going to be some anxiety no matter what you do in your due diligence and preparation for picking the right partner. But tell me a bit about who you think or what types of qualities you are looking for in your partner? So, I mean, I think my kind of um, priorities or things that are important to me have shifted definitely over the years. Um, But I think communication for me is very important. And I think that um, I've realized that I almost need that validation. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. so to be able to talk through things and almost like quality, like just check and make sure everything's okay, but also just I communicate. That's my, um, it's very important to to have that ability and talk about the good and the bad and mm-hmm. um, resolve problems together as a team. Um, I think, you know, they obviously need to um, be someone that's honest and, and loyal. Um, and then, um, you know, just somebody that is, is kind of has, has it together, you know, has, has like a good job, has, um, you know, comes from a decent family, um, can kind of mirror a lot of the things that I have in my life and we can kind of, you know, share and grow together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the the last one was more like a stability thing, which makes yeah. sense, I think, in general. So it's not say, oh, it's because of the, the anxiety. It makes sense to, to have those. But the other ones, you know, the honest and then also the communicating, which are qualities I think everyone should have in their partner. But it can make sense that they stand out for you because with both of those, it's like you want to know what's going on. It gives you the reassurance, as you said, of what's happening. And also, if you, they're more honest, sometimes the fear can be, 
with what you're experiencing that, well, what if they're not happy, but I don't know? Or what if they're about, they're thinking about going and I don't know, just like you're saying with, with your mom, it wasn't quite clear to you what was exactly happening. So it can make sense that that reassurance is so vital for you because I don't know if they're going to leave. And so what if I think everything is good, as maybe you did as a child, it was so fun, your mom is there and then she's gone. And that was so heartbreaking and devastating. So I could sense that there, there was some of this wanting the reassurance. And I think it's understandable that it is important for you to be with someone who's open. Now, it's not their responsibility to constantly reassure you. Um, you will at times have to deal with some of the anxiety that, you know, what, what sometimes happens is when we're coming from a space of anxiety in that way, it could kind of suck the love and the romance and the passion out of the relationship because it could constantly be about reassurance. So I'm not saying that's where you would go, but you can see this happening in some relationships where it's constantly, well, well you still like me or you still love me or you're still staying or you're not going. And sometimes we need that. That comes up almost in any relationship in a moment. But if it's a constant, then it becomes more about reassuring that you're, that you're not going to lose the relationship rather than actually enjoying the relationship itself while it is there. So I think it is important for you to be with someone who, yes, is open to communicate, wants to share things with you about what they're going through, the good and the bad, as you said. And I think that's why the bad is important for you, because you want to know if something's not going well. But you have to also be ready that your anxiety about this could also make it that you'll look for almost too much reassurance. And so that's something I want you to be mindful of, too, that that not always, you know, communication is good, but sometimes there can almost be a an OCD quality to the, the communication that I need to know everything that's going on mm-hmm. because of the anxiety that is there. And one, one thing just to add is I think, um, you know, when I'm with somebody that I feel like I'm attracted to, mm-hmm. I'm, I have a lot easier time kind of managing through some of the other things, just being mindful and aware and noticing when I, you know, what's triggering good. what. Um, but I think my biggest issue is just finding someone that I'm even physically attracted to. And so I, that's where I'm like questioning in my setting. And I don't think I'm looking for like Brad Pitt, but you know uh-huh. what I mean? I think that, um, that that's the hardest part for me to even find that attraction, initial attraction for it to even really grow into anything else. Okay. So now is that something that was a challenge before or you would find that you wouldn't be attracted to lots of men before as well or has that changed yeah no i think it's it's been a pretty pretty constant um and i was into long-term monogamous relationships and then you know i ever since the last few years it's just been hard for me to even find someone i physically connect with and want to take it further Mm -hmm. so and looking at it yourself again it's hard to observe ourselves but do you think it's something that you're looking for too high of a standard or are you saying even just have a basic attraction to the person? No, I think I might be setting it. It's, I, I think it goes back to just like my perfectionism, right? Even when you were talking about like um, kind of putting a wall up between my friends, I think part of it does stem from anxiety. and um, But I think part of it is also I really always want to be the best version of me mm-hmm. and really put forth, you know, like I won't, I won't walk out of the house and not have my hair brushed, and you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm very critical of myself, and so wanting to always be that best version of me can be kind of exhausting. Yeah. And so if I'm not, if I'm not in the mood, or I just feel like, you know, that sounds like a lot of work, then I'd rather just like decline an offer to, yeah. to even hang out with friends. 
Well, I feel like you almost gave yourself some homework with what you said. We might want you to try walking out of the house without your hair brushed or don't, you know, see how you do facing that uh, anxiety of not being perfect and seeing that everything's going to be okay. So I would want you to think about that, how you can approach life in some of those ways of making yourself a bit uncomfortable with some of those things. Um, And as you said, it's exhausting when we first of all feel like we have to present ourselves perfectly around people and around our friends. And so we might turn down things, as you said, because of that, because it takes some effort. And also with the perfectionism in relationships, it can also be about the interactions that, oh, we had so much fun. It was so good. There can almost be an anxiety of what if something doesn't go good or we have a bad conversation or, you know, those kinds of things can come up. So it can feel like, oh, like I'd rather just go home. So there's no anxiety of things getting messed up about the the Mm -hmm. interactions. How do you feel like you do with conflict, which is related to that type of issue, sharing something you don't like with, with someone? Yeah, I think it depends on my comfort level mm-hmm. with them. Um, but I think that in general, I would say I'd like to avoid conflict and or yeah. um, try to make it better. Like I'm a, I'm a conflict, like like to somehow mediate. Um, but when it comes to my own conflicts, I think I, like, again, glass half full positivity, like I almost use that in order to avoid conflict. <laughs> yeah, and that's something I'd want, you know, I felt that in some of the things you said before also, I'm sure you are resilient, so it's not to take away from that, but that's sometimes like this, I'm, you know, I can handle anything on my own, it's good, but it also, we almost forget that independence isn't the goal, it's more of interdependence, that we do need others and want others, and so there could be ways that you might cling to these types of, you know, things that sound good, like I'm independent and strong, that sounds good, but it could be kind of a cover of, I don't need anyone else and I'm afraid to be close. And also, um, you know, I'm, I'm the positivity, you know, you probably heard of this term of toxic positivity that sometimes we, you know, can go towards wanting to always feel good within ourselves and our relationships and, oh, it's good and everything's happy. And why would I ever be mad at a friend? Cause friends are good. And I'm so lucky to have a friend. People don't have some friends. And so we can fool ourselves away from the genuine feelings that we're having that are actually healthy and real and necessary to have a close relationship. So, oh, why should I bring this up with my friend? You know, she's done so many things for me. Uh, you know, there's no point or, you know, it's, we're having a good day. Why would I mess that up by bringing something up, you know? So, but those are things that in a genuine and really deep and emotionally intimate relationship we need to bring up and you really can't have the relationship be intimate without sharing those things. And it's interesting because the things you brought up of what you're looking for in a partner, one of them was that they'll share the good and the bad, but maybe I don't know how you feel like you deal with the sharing the bad part yourself. I think it's just how it's received. Um, There Mm -hmm. are certain people in my life that I can think about who are um, you know, who won't be offended and are good communicators and are more just even keeled with their with their just energy and their temperament. Um, and then there's others who get very defensive. Mm-hmm. And so that's really kind of how I determine, sure. you know, if and how I bring things up. And that's, you know, and that's going to be true for anyone to a degree, right? If someone we know they might blow up or they're so defensive or they won't acknowledge stuff. So you might feel like, well, what's the point? But we also want to be aware some people have different degrees to how much that affects. So someone might pick, oh, it's going to bother them or they might get really upset. I won't tell them. And some people might say, well, this is what's on my mind and we're in a friendship or relationship, whatever it is. I'm going to let them know, even if they're not going to like it. And it's not that you're saying it to make them upset, but you might make say something that might upset them because you're trying to be open. So that's something also for you to look at. Do you 
try to avoid the conflict. And yes, it does depend on how they respond or react. That always is going to play a big part. But that you have to be open to upsetting people. Again, not that that's your intention, but that it might upset them when you share, uh, you know, what's going on for you. Sure. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. So coming back, you know, we have a few minutes left before actually the, we have to wrap up for the show. Um, but looking at, you know, dating, tell me where you're at right now as far as dating goes. It seems like, you know, you're going through your medical things and all that, and now you're feeling more ready. Yeah. Where are you at right now? Um, I mean, I've, I've been, you know, I've been introduced to a couple of people and have um, gone out on a few dates, um, but, but nothing that's been, you know, very okay. serious but that's again been my um it's the uncertainty it's the indecisiveness yeah. um it's the wanting things to be kind of perfect and not settling mm-hmm. and so yeah even the not settling we don't we're, it doesn't sound like you're going to settle so i'd almost take that <sighs> away from yourself because i think you're using that as a crutch a bit to, as a way out that i'm not settling we don't want you to but it doesn't seem like that's your concern your concern is almost the other way where you might be too picky and i know sometimes you know when people say, oh, you're being too picky and they say it in a way of talking down to someone or making them feel bad. But it's not we, we see that it's not picky just from this, like, because, you know, you're snobby. No, it's picky because of the anxiety. You're so afraid that you are protecting yourself. So that pickiness is a protection. And so we can understand it and hear it. But what I would recommend is not that you wouldn't trust your instincts. And if you're very unattracted to someone and you can't imagine being physical, being sexual with them, don't pursue that person further but to kind of put your radar where okay i know i might go towards no sooner than i probably should so let me be a little bit more patient before i close the door on someone so again you can't totally counteract how you feel if you're repulsed by them not attracted at all i'm not saying keep dating that person Uh, you know kind of the persian adage of like you know just like oh marry them and then you'll get you'll get attracted Mm -hmm. to them kind of a thing i'm not suggesting that but you do have to be aware that your radar seems to go to no a little too quickly or we're we're noticing that pattern so you might Mm -hmm. feel that but i would say give a little bit more of a chance to see if you can you know, if the feelings are there or what is there. And also remind yourself, you know, this picky part of you, it's like this overprotective parent that's within you that's trying to protect you from something that's so scary, which we can understand, but that you're going to have to go forward. And there's this poem, it's like leap before you look. And some of what you're, we do, all of us do in love is you don't know exactly what's going to happen. So you do in some ways leap before you look to know exactly where you're going to land. And there's always going to be an anxiety when you commit to someone. And if you wait till you feel no anxiety, you'll never commit to anyone because there's never going to be no anxiety. So that's something for everyone, but especially for you, you have to remember that it's going to be there and it's going to take some courage to go into and towards that anxiety and that anxiety provoking situation and also trust and commitment and all these things it's not all or nothing you're not just going to go on a few dates and then you 100 trust this person uh, to be there and to not hurt you you're slowly going to invest and give more of yourself but what i'm hearing in your you know i've waited this long i don't want to settle is a little bit of maybe i can just almost not commit to anyone ever and you can choose to do that, obviously, but I wouldn't want the anxiety be, to be the reason you don't do it. 
And this is something I work with a lot of clients where, you know, something comes up and if they don't want something, you don't want something. But we wouldn't want you not to do something because the anxiety gets in the way. You know, you get a promotion and it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's a bad job. I shouldn't take it. Okay, that's one. But if it's I'm not sure if I'm good enough to do it, then I want you to do it because that anxiety shouldn't be the reason you stop yourself. So for you, I think the anxiety can get in the way and we don't want that to be the case. Obviously, you're very self-reflective. You could also consider going into therapy so as it can help you process what you're going through as you're dating to kind of see where are the feelings coming from, what's going on. Because we can be assured that anxiety is going to shoot up as soon as you start getting close to someone. And as much as anxiety tells us go away from the thing that makes us anxious, you're going to have to try the courageous thing and keep going towards it, which is tough, but we have to believe that you can do it. Awesome. No, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, just I think figuring out the tools of how to kind of um, combat the anxiety or I think just the awareness yeah. is, is super important. And, and, and if I can yeah. share, I, you know, I do have to wrap up, but I get the sense, yeah. even in what you're saying, sometimes there's a sense of I have to keep figuring it out. And some of it's going to be the doing and going forward. And yeah, the tools and all that will be there or you have to, to think about them. But, you know, I could see you getting stuck in an analysis uh, paralysis where you kind of get stuck mm-hmm. trying to figure it out and you're going to have to jump in a little bit more and it's going to feel a little bit scary. So I get it. You need that push, but, you know, wish you the best in, in figuring that out. Thank you so much. This has been very helpful. Thank you. It's nice talking to you. Wishing you the best. Take care. Same to you. Bye. All right. That brings us to the end of today's show. As always, big thank you to Ghazala here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day.